This is Triple H 100.1 FM with Ian Stewart. Good afternoon and welcome to Rotary Matters. Today we're going to continue our exploration of Rotary, what it is, the good work that it does, and how Rotarians and non-Rotarians can get involved. Now we call the programme Rotary Matters because, as you're going to find out over the next hour, Rotary impacts many lives, many causes, and many concerns locally and all over the world. And it's an international story that we're here to share with you today. It's a story set in the Democratic Republic of the Congo and the tireless efforts of a remarkable lady. She lives in Sydney, but is dedicated to providing sustainable improvements to health and education services for villagers and the well-being of women in the township of Latombe and further afield. We'll learn about some of the capacity-building projects, including sustainable beekeeping, women's microcredit, the sale of duck eggs and fruit sales to help pay for orphans' schooling, and also the work that they're doing to educate the first responders and emergency care workers. Now, the enterprise is called, intriguingly, Hand Up Congo, and the co-founder, Lucy Hobgood-Brown, is with us in the studio today. We're going to find out what Hand Up Congo means, the core philosophy which underpins it, what it does, and the impact that Hand Up Congo is having. I'm sure you're going to enjoy meeting Lucy here this afternoon on Rotary the Matters. But look, um, if you haven't heard the programme before, let me just give you a very quick um, uh, elevator pitch, if you want, about Rotary. It's a worldwide organisation set up over 100 years ago to foster the concept of service above self. Around the world, there are 1.2 million members in 35,000 Rotary Clubs in 220 countries. Here in Australia, we've got 30,000 Rotarians and 1,100 clubs. Here in the Triple H catchment area, we have 10 Rotary Clubs, though as the signal does go beyond Hornsby and Karingai, this number is certainly higher. Most clubs will meet once a week and they'll donate the time to arrange a very worthy local, regional and international community service project. So you're going to find Rotarians fighting disease, remember like polio that we heard from last week, uh, providing clean water, sanitation and hygiene, saving mothers and children, supporting education, growing local economies and promoting peace. And locally you might see Rotarians running a food bank for those less able to pay. You might meet a student here on exchange from overseas, attending a local school and staying with a local family. Or you may find Rotarians running a fundraising event focused on sending emergency shelter boxes to help communities overseas which have been devastated by natural disaster. As I said earlier, today we're going to be learning about Hand Up Congo. It's a wonderful initiative making a big difference to communities in the Democratic Republic of Congo. In a moment, we're going to be meeting the co-founder and the driver of this enterprise, uh, Lucy Hobgood-Brown. Jerry Lee Lewis there with his great H100.1 FM and this is Rotary Matters where today we're meeting Lucy Hobgood-Brown, co-founder of Hand Up Congo. Welcome Lucy. Mbote, that means hello and day in a Congolese language. Oh, thank you, Lucy. And also with me is fellow Taramoritarian John Conry, uh, Cronley rather, to help me with the questions. Hello, John. Hi, it's great to be here. I look, looking forward to some very interesting, interesting news. Thank you. So let's begin with you, Lucy. Uh, so let's just position the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Whereabouts is it? It's in Central Africa, at the heart of Africa. It's surrounded by nine countries. And it only has a tiny 
bit of ocean access. So other than that, it's totally land-based. And a great part of it is um, the second largest rainforest of the world. Okay. Um, so uh, I should explain to our listeners that Lucy is wearing the most flamboyant and colourful coat, which um, features the logo of Rotary and surrounding it, the names of the what are known as the Francophone um, countries, uh, which are countries where French is spoken. It was French the primary language in the Democratic Republic of Congo? Yes. Uh, the Congo used to be the Belgian uh, Congo, and it gained its independence in 1960. So French is the national language. Uh, there are, in fact, uh, two Congos, aren't there? To say I was being confused, could you tell us a little bit about... Um uh, the differences between the Congos. Yeah, well, good for you for knowing that there's two. <laughs> there is a tiny Congo called the Republic of Congo, or in every day we would say Congo Braza or Congo Brazzaville, which is the capital of that tiny country, which is just across the Congo River from Congo Kinshasa. Okay, so the population of the Democratic Republic of Congo is? 80 million. 80 million. Okay, and ethnicity? There are over 200 tribes. 200 tribes. Bantu is the primary um, tribe. Does this mean 200 different languages? Oh, probably more than that. Probably more than that, oh my goodness. <laughs> and and uh, Lucy Hopgood-Brown, the standard of living for people living in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, how would you describe that? I'd say 80% of the population lives on less than a dollar US a, a day. So even though it's one of the wealthiest countries in terms of natural resources... The poverty is terrible. The natural resources being? Minerals. Minerals. We get the coal, the coal tan that, that uh, fires up our flat screen TVs and our smartphones. comes from Congo, probably. Okay, so massive mineral wealth, but, but relatively low um, economic status for the people who live there. Yes. And politically, what's the situation? It has a democratically elected president, Felix Chisikede, and he's been in power since last December. Mm -hmm. But the country is so vast and the infrastructure is so poor that it's a real challenge for anyone, to even a dictator, which is what we've had since 1960 primarily, to, to govern a country that's that big. So is, is voting compulsory or optional? No. It's not. So you probably get a fairly low turnout, I imagine, at elections? No, because people, this last December, people were very eager to vote because it was a rarity to do that. Mm -hmm. uh, the challenges are that the infrastructure, as I said, is so poor. So people have vast distances through forests, on the rivers, uh, to be able to get to polling booths. Right. Okay. So 80 million people. Uh, John? Um, how long has the country been independent? Since 1960. Wow. Um, has, has there been any change since it became independent? Oh, many, many. We've had several name changes of the country. It was when I was a little girl living there before it got independence. It was known as the Belgian Congo, then Zaire, and then Democratic Republic of Congo. And that just exemplifies, I think, the number of, um, of leaders that the country has had, most of whom were dictators. Um, is the Ebola virus still a problem? It is, unfortunately. That's mostly now in the northeast Congo on the Rwanda-Uganda-Burundi borders. Does that affect the way you operate? It does in that we have done training in northeast Congo in the past, but uh, we're not going there at the moment. And are there any pygmies, and do they pose a problem such as discrimination? 
Yes, the indigenous uh, peoples of the Congo are, are pygmies. So these are people who are very short in stature. And I have a picture of myself as a little girl when I was about 10. And I was a lot taller than the grown men pygmies that, um, that I had the photograph with. So they were, they are hunter-gatherers and uh, lived a very healthy lives but now that there are there has been so much conflict over the years there have been so many thousands of people displaced going into the forests where the pygmies have lived they have been pushed out and they also are discriminated against in villages and towns where they so what percentage of the 80 million would be pygmies I don't know that. Okay. Uh, I, I'm sorry, I don't know that. That's all right, that's okay. So we're talking with uh, Lucy Hobgood-Brown. We've got a description there of the Democratic Republic of the Congo. I'm going to ask Lucy more specifically in a moment about the project Hand Up Congo. <laughs> Tom Jones there, of course, it's not unusual. It's Ian Stewart, it's Rotary Matters, it's Friday afternoon, you're on Triple H 100.1 FM. Before I return to our guest, Lucy Hobgood-Brown, um, in Asquith, on the corner of the Pacific Highway, approaching Karingai Chase Road, a car has broken down, one northbound lane is closed. So watch out if, if you're in that part of the world, that will explain why the traffic is running a bit more slowly. Moving on, Hand Up Congo is the name of Lucy's um, NGO. And um, I'd like you, Lucy, if you would please just explain to us the basic idea of Hand Up as opposed to Hand Out. We started, my sister and a woman friend, Betsy, and I started Hand Up Congo about 15 years ago. And we wanted, we didn't want to give handouts. We wanted to have project partners with dignity and so but you wanted to do something beneficial absolutely we wanted to do capacity building specifically focused on women and i think it was my colleague betsy who came up with the the name hand up congo okay so the idea being if you give people a hand up rather than a hand out exactly it'll have much longer lasting that's right um, they need the congolese we want the congolese and they do too to take ownership of their their problems and their challenges and they might just need some advice they might just need some cheerleading they might need some finances or other kind of uh, resources and that's where we come in they come to us with a specific project request and if we can help we try we try to do that so it's a bit like giving people a fishing rod rather than giving them fish exactly or giving them a spade rather than digging the well you give them the means with which to um, get their own fish and Absolutely. get their own water. Fantastic. So, ha- um, Hand Up Congo, how long ago did it start? About 15 years ago. Right. And what are the three main projects that you, uh, you're running? Well, we have probably more than that, but um, we, we because we're deliberately small, it's just a small group of women primarily working on Hand Up Congo, most in Australia because I live here. And we have to be very strategic because we're small. And so we work specifically in the village where my father was born, in Lotumbe, an equatorial province. He was the son of American missionaries. And then uh, we also work in the capital, uh, Kinshasa, because my parents helped found a university that is still going strong there. And I'm their Australian representative. So Lotumbe, just uh, how many people and how far away is it from the capital? Lotumbi is accessible today only by forest paths or by canoe. So it's, it's quite remote. It's very remote. It's 300 kilometers 
from uh, the provincial capital, Mbandaka. So it takes it's quite a while to get there. And, and you spent your childhood there? I did. I grew up there. And, and, and canoe only and, and forest paths well, were the only way. In those days, when I was a little girl, it was still the Belgian Congo. Yes. So there was, uh, we had uh, Cessna planes that could land there. We had an airfield there. And we had motorboats, speedboats, and it was much easier. But uh, all of that infrastructure has gone by the wayside. So the only way when I go with other volunteers, we have to get into a canoe at the provincial capital. Mm -hmm. And it takes us at least 20 hours if we hire a motor and splurge. (laughs) If we're lucky, we get there in 20 hours. Um, If we were a a regular Congolese and they were paddling a canoe, it would take them at least seven days. My goodness me. (laughs) So sometimes you go back to uh, Latumbe. Every year. Your journey, and and I know you're going later this month, your journey from Sydney to Latumbe sounds like it's two or three days. Well, it's a long one. It's a long one. Yes, it depends. I I fly directly Sydney to Johannesburg, South Africa, and then I fly to Congo to the capital, Kinshasa. Okay. Then I take another flight to the equatorial province capital, and then I get into the canoe. What an amazing journey. I'm going to ask Lucy in a moment to describe some of the projects in a bit more detail uh, after this. Welcome back. Welcome back to Rotary Matters. It's Ian Stewart here. And uh, my guest in the studio this afternoon is Lucy Hobgood-Brown. We're talking about the project she runs called Hand Up Congo. Lucy, um, food security is one of the areas you tackle. Can you tell us a bit about that? It is. The population in Lotumbe is about 3,000 people, but they're scattered in hamlets throughout the rainforest. And the poverty is huge. Mm -hmm. So even though they live on a river and there is fishing they might not necessarily have the money to hire a canoe or fishing net or fishing pole. So the poverty is great. And so we worked with our Congolese partners there to identify that food security was their priority. And then to help them, we identified um, projects like a beekeeping project because they did have access to very experienced pygmy beekeepers who uh, harvested honey the traditional way. And so we've, one of our projects has been to introduce sustainable beekeeping. What is sustainable bee- beekeeping as opposed to unsustainable beekeeping? Well, I lear- I've learned a lot about this. <laughs> um, what we found was that the pygmy beekeepers would burn a tree down in order to get to the honey. Of course. They didn't have uh, the, the uh, equipment that beekeepers in Australia have. And so... The training that we provided taught them how to get access to bees, move hives into the village, how to build a traditional beehive that they could manage in the village instead of going into the forest, and providing them with basics like smokers that would smoke the bees out so that they wouldn't get stung and they could access honey. So now they sell the honey, and it's one of their big income generators. So to whom do they sell it? Well, right now they're selling it to their own villagers, and then they have riverside markets up and down the river. And we also have provided a canoe and a motor for the women microcredit group. We call them the microcredit mamas, and they take the honey and they sell it at markets. So um, did you um, have expertise in apiary and were able to um, teach them how to uh, build a hive uh, no, and to harvest I, it in the more I of a Western way? No, I certainly didn't. But um, 
a volunteer, Dr. Vera Sistnik, who lives in Sydney, is a hobby apiarist, a, 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 a beekeeper. Is she the lady in Coogee? She, she used to live in Coogee. Right. And she went with me in 2015 uh, for her first trip to Congo. And she went specifically to train in emergency medicine skills. However, she said, Lucy, do you know any beekeepers <laughs> in Congo? So we found a Congolese beekeeper who happened to be the president of the Beekeeping Association of Congo. Wow. And he is the one who um, we raised money to send him in the canoe. He'd never been in a canoe before <laughs> to go to the village and actually train in more best practice sustainable beekeeping. And is it just honey that your food security um, project focuses on? No, not at all. Uh, the, the, we also do farming techniques, uh, best practice mar uh, farming techniques and fishing, uh, fish farms. And uh, we've learned a lot about duck raising. D duck raising. Duck raising. We actually, this project was brought to us by the children of the village, the orphans. There are a lot of orphans in that village because parents die from AIDS, HIV, or from other illnesses. And so they, on one of our visits, they said, Mama Lucy, we think if we had ducks and we could raise the ducks, we would sell the eggs, the money would help us with our tuition, and we would have the eggs to eat as well. So we did a big fundraiser in Sydney um, to raise money for ducks. To raise money. And <laughs> you sourced the ducks locally? Oh, yes. Yes. <laughs> well, they had to be brought in by canoe. By canoe. But uh, we've also brought in cows, big cows and canoes. <laughs> so canoes are used for, for transportation of every, you know, daily life. And, and these are concepts that were unfamiliar, I guess, to the people in the village of cows and ducks. Yes, because most of them have not even left that village. Mm. They would not have ever seen a television or a film. Um, they certainly wouldn't have seen a cow before we introduced cows. Um, we've made a lot of mistakes. Some of One of the big challenges in that village is that there is no vet. And we've had to raise money for vaccinations and, and, and learn how to raise ducks in a way that keeps them healthy. Of course. So we've, we've oh, I'm sorry to say some ducks have died, <laughs> but we have learned and um, things have improved. So um, food security, ducks, bees, cows uh, are all initiatives that you've introduced. And yes, and quick growing uh, seedlings, plants that... Um, are more nutritious because there is a lot of uh, malnutrition in yes. the village. Yes. And we work closely with single mothers and with widows, uh, people, women who are elders who don't have families anymore to take care of them. And so they have a community garden and we help provide small things like hoes and wheelbarrows so that they can earn a living as well and sell their goods. So the, se the second... Um strand to your bow, um, which I was reading about, is to do with preparing people to cope with emergencies, particularly emer emergency medicine. Yes. How, did, how did that come about? Well, that was purely accidental. Uh, I went to a networking function in Sydney and I met this fabulous young doctor, Dr. Vera Sistanik, who had just arrived in Sydney. And she had been working with United Nations and she said she wanted to do more grassroots, small projects. And I said jokingly, well, you should come to Congo with me sometime. And she said, okay. Mm -hmm. And she's now been three times. And she has been the catalyst for introducing 
a new discipline to medicine in Congo, and that's emergency medicine. So prior to that, what, what was happening in the event of, a, of an accident? Some hospitals would say they had an emergency department, but really they relied on an anesthetist, someone who had been trained, uh, but they, they didn't have the equipment nor mm-hmm. the skills necessarily, nor were they always available when an emergency came in. So we've, um, with Vera's help and with a lot of uh, Rotary Club's help as well, we have taken in equipment like uh, mannequins, inflatable mannequins, so that we can teach CPR. Oh, wow. And it is... And in a few weeks, I'm going to Congo for the first emergency medicine symposium, and it's led by the first uh, Congo Emergency Medicine Association. And I do believe that our little hand up Congo was a catalyst for all of that. Lucy, it is fantastic what you've done. I just love it, the way that you've gone in there. You've spotted needs. You've brought ideas. You've brought people. Some of it... Um, haphazard by by the way you're describing it serendipitous in in fact but with fantastic impact and outcomes so i want to hear a bit more from lucy hobgood brown in a minute elvis presley there who's all shook up it's um lucy hobgood brown hand up congo it's the name of your um, ngo you've told us a little bit about the um, (coughs) food security program and um the haphazard way that emergency medicine um uh, has been introduced uh, to that part of the world. Um, I'm intrigued by the idea of microfinance. Can you just uh, expand on that a little bit? What does it actually mean? Microfinance is uh, based on seed money being available and groups of people getting together and putting in a little bit of money. And then they will, at least in uh, Congo, they they base their model, a uh, development model, on they pool their what money they can afford in a set group and then they uh, if one of them has a specific need like a, a woman says I want to make cakes I need a, enough money to buy a bag of flour she puts in her request to the other microcredit mamas they vote and then when that woman hopefully makes money from selling her cakes, she puts profits back in so, so does the money come from the other mem- people in her group? Or, or do you put in some seed money from, from over Both. here? Both. Both. Uh, seed money isn't always available. But mm. yes, so our projects, you mentioned haphazard. In a way, they're not because our Congolese project partners tell us what they need help with. And seed money for starting microcredit women's groups was one of the things they specifically asked for. So you gave the example of somebody uh, wanting to make cakes. Um, do uh, What about making clothes? Yes. So one of our projects is a sewing project. Uh-huh. And that was um, funded by an American foundation that gave us money to actually buy a, a few sewing machines. And they have to be pedal sewing machines because there's no electricity. And the women then are were given a, a, some um, fabric and basic sewing uh, tools like needles from a wonderful Australian NGO called SoAid. SoAid. S-E-W-A-I-D. S-E-W-A-I-D. And um, they then can sell the clothes. But we ask them if they get seed money, they need to put back into the community before they can take profits themselves. So they are making school uniforms. They're making babies' outfits for newborns in the hospital to encourage women to give birth in the hospital where they're more likely to live. And they make doctor's jackets and so on. 
and then they can sell clothes that they make um, in the community store, which we also helped establish, so that there would be a central commercial hub for the whole village to have access to. And, and as most of the microfinance projects, are they um, run by women? Or, I mean, you've spoken about sewing and, and baking. Is there anything for men in any of this? Well, that's one of the things that they're actually looking at. Um, this last, a couple of months ago, we funded having three people go to Northeast Congo to look at a bigger city's microcredit development models. And they came back with some exciting new ideas that they're now introducing in Lotumbi. So, yes, there are different models. And one of them, we asked them specifically to look at ways that would engage men and youth because we need the whole community to collaborate together for the good of the community and so that there's not jealousy. Right, right, right. So, yes, we're, we've, we're waiting to hear what the results of those new groups are. So it, it all sounds perfect and utopian. I mean, is there any resistance at all to any of your initiatives? Well, there's, mis- there's miscommunication often. The, my last trip, last November, I met with two of the women's microcredit groups. And uh, I asked, how much money did you make this year? And they, you know, it wasn't much, but to them it was a lot. And they said, and this has gone to you, hasn't it? And so that was a big misperception. They thought that Hand Up Congo and me personally were taking their profits. Right, right. So communication and transparency is one of the big jobs that we have to making sure that if equipment is donated, for example, we also donated a grinding machine that would be with the ground rules that's accessible to all the people in the village. This is for grinding corn. Grinding uh, manioc. Manioc. Cassava flour. Oh, yes. It's a it's a tuber uh, food, and which is very essential to keeping people's hungry stomachs feeling full. And where did the grinding machine come from? That They were able to buy that in the provincial capital. Yes. So we asked, before you let access to anyone to have the machine, it needs to be carried around all the different church groups, the different schools, the community meetings, explain that it's for the use of everyone, explain how it can be accessed, and that it's transparent. The process is transparent so that they don't think these foreigners are only helping a few of course, friends. Of course. So, Lucy Hopkin-Brown, what next? Have you got other <laughs> projects up your sleeve that you'd like to uh, implement and get going? There's never ending. Never ending. <laughs> the needs are so huge, yes. not only in Lotumbe, but in all of Congo. So we just listen. We listen a lot. We ask a lot of questions. And when I go later this month, I will be meeting with the leaders of the community development projects and doing a lot of listening. And then how we can work together to solve problems and come up with new ideas. So, Lucy, when you go, I mean, where are you actually staying? When you, when you arrive in Latumbe? I, I actually sleep in the bedroom where my father was born. My grandparents built this house back in 1912. It's crumbling. I fell through the floor. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> a year or two ago because they don't have the money to, to maintain it. But it's still a grand old brick and crumbling wood uh, building. And I sleep actually in that bedroom. There is a, an image of that, Lucy, on your website, uh, I believe, of the... Of me falling through the not floor. Not falling through, but of the house itself yes. uh, back in the day. Uh-huh. So you actually would stay there. Yes. Uh, despite the, the crumbling floor. And yes. So today, the, the family that lives there is the head pastor's family, 
and they are very generous about having uh, me and our other volunteers actually stay there because it's the most comfortable. It's relative, but it's the most comfortable of place to stay. Well, I'm sure they appreciate it, and they, they would see within the community the impact of the good work that you've been doing. Well, I'm a daughter of the village. You know, mm-hmm. they really do believe that. And one of the exciting things for our volunteers who go from Australia is from miles and miles away, we hear the, dr- the jungle drums beating a message from village to village that our team is arriving. And by the time we get to Lotumbi and our canoe glides into the riverbank, hundreds and hundreds of people are wow. waiting to sing us ashore. So, yes, there's no doubt that we are very much appreciated. This must be a wonderful moment for you, though, coming back and being (laughs) greeted by hundreds of people singing you a welcome as you step out of the boat onto shore. Even though I grew up there and Mm -hmm. I know what to expect, it just gives me goosebumps each time. And then the next thing they do is they walk me to the cemetery because both my parents are buried there. Isn't that lovely? I'm talking to Lucy Hobgood-Brown. It's Ian Stewart. It's uh, Triple H 100.1 FM. This program is called Rotary Matters. I'm going to ask Lucy in a moment where Rotary fits into this uh, jigsaw. Welcome back to Rotary Matters. It's Ian Stewart here. It's 19 minutes to four on Friday afternoon. Um, with me is uh, Lucy Hobgood-Brown, a founder of Hand Up Congo, a wonderful uh, initiative um, which it just seems to be growing and doing even more very good work um, over there in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Um, Lucy, um, Rotary, how does this fit into the jigsaw? Our NGO is very, very small. It's really just a handful of volunteers. And uh, I think I was feeling extra overwhelmed one day, and a friend of mine said, why don't you join Rotary? Tap into the Rotary network. So I did. And I I, I discovered the power of Rotary. And I was also happy to learn that in Congo, we actually have 28 Rotary Clubs. And so when we do a district grant or a global grant or just ask for help, uh, for example, a few years ago, our international Rotary president, who was an Australian, Ian Risley, wanted every member in the world to plant a tree. So I called upon a small Rotary Club in the provincial capital where I actually get into the canoe, and I said, can you bring trees? Let's travel together to the village and plant trees. Talk about climate change because the school children are living in the second largest rainforest in the world and they're cutting down trees for shelter and for cooking and they're not aware of the dangers of deforestation. So Rotary has helped us in supporting grants in helping us source medical equipment that we've taken over and uh, people power. So um, there, there is a, a process through which granting can be done. It's the Rotary Australia Worldwide Community Service Award, or ROCS, ROCS uh-huh. in short. Mm-hmm. There's, a, there's a great advantage for financially in placing a donation through that. There is. Uh, we specifically set up two projects through ROCS because we can now give Australians tax deductibility. So if you go on to the www.rawcs.org website, you can then put in Project 47, which is emergency medicine, or you can put in Project 20, which is Lotumbi Community Development, and designate if you want to help the bees, the ducks, emergency training, uh, or other kinds of health-related projects. And are they described against those numbers? They are. So if I wanted to be one, I'd go onto the Rorks website... 
um, search on the list of projects being managed. Look for number 47. Uh, project 20 is Lotumbi Community Development, and that's okay. where the beekeeping project okay. is. Okay. Or they can email me, mm-hmm. and that email is handupcongo uh, at gmail.com. Okay, it's not hands up. No, no, it's no. It's hand up. Hand up. Con- H-A-N-D-U-P, Congo, all one word, at gmail.com. Well, Lucy Hobgobrand, it has been an absolute delight having you with us this afternoon and, and sharing your stories of what you've been up to, uh, doing some remarkable work in a part of the world that most of us have maybe heard of but really have no concept of what it looks like, feels like, or the, or the economic situation over there. You are making a huge difference. And on behalf of Rotary Matters, would really like to congratulate you on some outstanding work. And can I ask you if you'd like to come back again in about a year's time and bring us up to date? I'd love to. Thank you. I mean, I've, I've looked at your website. I got a, a, a sense of what's going on, but it is dynamic. And quite clearly, uh, there's other things up your sleeve which you're itching to uh, bring to fruition. And so if you would share those with us on another visit, we'd appreciate it. And if any listeners are interested in an adventure, if you're an adventurous person and you have skills to share, definitely email me and let's talk. You might want to go in the canoe next year. (laughs) Um, Skills specifically, um, anything spring to mind? Farming. Farming. Literacy. um, uh, Beekeeping. Beekeeping. Certainly health, mm-hmm. uh, education, microcredit. Oh, goodness me. There's no shortage. I've always been able to match a skill that's been offered with a need. I go back to the village and say, is this useful? We have a volunteer who's interested in coming. And then we work out how to make it work. Fantastic. Lucy Hopper-Brown, thank you. I do hope you'll get some response to all of that. And uh, thank you again for coming. Look forward to seeing you again to continue the story. Um, 